You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, uh, editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment on Inter- uh, for International Peace. Uh, joining me today is Brian Whedon, the Director of Program Planning for the Secure World Foundation. Uh, Brian has nearly two decades of professional experience in space operations and policy, which I think gives away what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so on this podcast, we've talked about geopolitical competition in the Asia-Pacific region in several domains, land, sea, uh, and, and certainly the air. Uh, today, I'm hoping to talk a little bit more about space and specifically counter space capabilities. Some listeners will recall we did address this in one way, uh, last year when India conducted its first test, uh, successful test of a direct ascent anti-satellite weapon, uh, we discussed that quite a bit on the podcast and the implications, uh, the relationship that might have with missile defense technology. Uh, but the reason I'm really glad to have Brian on is um, SWF has just published uh, some really great fact sheets on um, the you know DAASAT weapon testing around Asia and around the world uh, in uh, Russia and the United States as well. Uh, so I'm hoping to talk to Brian a little bit about counterspace capabilities, uh, geopolitics. So Brian, I really want to welcome you uh, to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Great. Happy so, to talk about a topic near dear to my heart. Yeah, absolutely. I know, and I, I know you're uh, you're a real thought leader on these issues. So, um, uh, you know, very happy to get a chance to dig in uh, to these issues. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your counterspace assessment. I mean, in my own work on space issues, it's it's really a resource that I rely on. I, I frequently reference it. Uh, tell us a bit about you know what motivates it and um and and what it covers. Sure. Well. You know, several years ago, there was a, started to be a lot more public discussion and concern and political rhetoric about a growing security competition, potential conflict in outer space. But when we looked at sort of what was available in the public domain in terms of, you know, kind of underlying information to inform that discussion, we discovered there really wasn't a whole lot. Traditionally, a lot of the information about NASA security space activities is classified or at least sensitive, and much of the experts on it are in governments, and they tend not to publish stuff or kind of work too, too openly on it. Um, so we found there was this discussion going on that didn't have, in our minds, a strong, open, factual basis. And so we decided to do what we can to collate all the information that's out there in the in the public domain on what's going on in space and security activities and you know weapons development and then try and, and make our own assessment of what is going on and then make it public mm-hmm. so that we can use that as a foundation for these discussions and these debates. Right, and that's incredibly valuable. I mean, uh, to have intelligent conversations about um, policy, about, about geopolitics, uh, when it comes to space competition, it is very important for stakeholders, including everybody from journalists to policymakers to politicians to have access to that kind of information. So it's, it's really a valuable service. Um, so when it comes to Asia today, uh, I just want to begin sort of at a very general 30,000 or I guess 100,000 foot level or even, even higher, so to speak, um, to talk a little bit about, um, where you see the, space competition dynamics in the Asia Pacific, specifically when it comes to weaponized capabilities and the militarization of space. Um, tell us a little bit about what is happening and which countries are really the leaders uh, in in driving these developments uh, in the Asian region. Sure. Uh, well, historically, the, the, the players were Japan, China, and, and India. 
and they would have they had all historically a little bit different approach to things. You know, India has had a pretty vibrant civil space program uh, since the the seventies, and by civil I mean they focused mostly on using space for social and economic benefits, and they did not have a, a dedicated military or even really an intelligence space program. And Japan's was largely similar. Uh, they, they've been a, a, a partner of, of the U.S. In, in several NASA programs for quite a long time, very strong in science and technology, civil, so again, those same civil space activities, uh, but did not have an uh, national security. By that, we mean military and intelligence space capability, in part because they had a the Japanese constitution was interpreted to mean peaceful uses of outer space means non-military. And then you have China, which for the last several decades has been on a dedicated program to build up a whole range of high-tech capabilities, and that includes space as well as nuclear and ballistic missiles, and of course there are links between those three. So for the last several decades, and in particular the last, I would say, three China has been focused on building up its space capabilities across the board. So that's not only a strong civil space program, but also a strong human spaceflight program, a strong science program, and a strong military and intelligence space program. Mm -hmm. What we've seen is sort of a sea change in those relationships since 2007, when China very publicly tested an anti-satellite weapon and destroyed one of its own satellites. Uh, you know, that, that was not their first anti-satellite test, but it was the one that spurred a quite a bit of change. Since that test, India has started focusing on its own military and intelligence space capabilities and now has uh, a small but, but you know, pretty dedicated military program. You talked about their anti-satellite test. Um, and Japan, too, has changed the way it interprets the Constitution, and its own, sorry, its own Constitution, and has now started dedicated military and intelligence space capabilities. Now, North Korea plays another role there because Japan's very concerned about their missile and nuclear programs, uh, but, it's, but, but it's also Japan. Um, so that's sort of where the dynamics are headed right now is you know the, the rapidly uh, maturing Chinese capabilities, they're growing economic power, uh, they're you know, growing regional power is prompting some changes in responses in India and China, uh, and then also add in South Korea uh, has also added to started up its own, you know, beefing up its own military space program to a little bit lesser extent. Again, North Korea and China are the two things they're watching. Yeah, the South Korea issue is pretty interesting to me. I mean, uh, they just in um, in late July, the U.S. and South Korea, uh, just for background for our listeners, um, revised their missile guidelines that go back to 1979. Um, those mm -hmm. guidelines didn't allow South Korea to build and possess uh, large solid propellant boosters for space launch vehicles. Um, and now that restriction's been scrapped. And big Correct. reason for that is Seoul wants to uh, put up a lot more of its own um, ISR, uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets in space. So uh, that'll be something to watch. Yeah, I, and, but I think there's also a, another subcurrent there. The reason that restriction was in place because of missile proliferation right. concerns by the United States, and, and and you know South Korea is also looking at perhaps developing its own ballistic missiles. 
That's right. Yeah, they already have some pretty impressive solid propellant missiles, including this yep. new system called the Hyunmu 4 that just started testing this year. Um, but anyways, uh, that, that was a really helpful um, overview of, of the capabilities and the players. And I mean, you know, I just want to briefly, I don't want to delve too much on the 2007 test, but but I mean, that was a, a big kind of ASAT call, um, a, a, sorry, a big wake-up call for the uh, the space community, uh, the national security community, certainly in the United States uh, and in other parts of Asia, um, just given how remarkable that test was, right? A intercept at 865 kilometers, creating almost 3,500 pieces of trackable debris, some of which is going to remain in orbit for decades. Um, how how did, so, you know, I mean, I have a little bit of the background on how the United States reacted. Obviously, it was a major wake-up call here, but how did Asian countries, particularly, you know, countries that have a competitive relationship with China, like Japan and India, especially, how did they interpret that moment when it came to uh, their own thinking about the security of their own space assets uh, and and their own counter space capabilities? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I was in the U.S. Air Force at the time and, and uh, absolutely, you know, within the United States. That event, it was not, again, it was not their first in a satellite test, certainly not the first time anyone has done that, but politically and publicly, it was a pretty big sea change. Uh, you know, so I didn't have a lot of contact with, with India um, or, or, or Japan at the time, but talking to them now about what happened, that really was the spark, as far as I can tell, for both India and Japan to shift away from a purely civil space program to add in the the national security components for example in india you saw that their 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 space cell right which is their first sort of small dedicated military space office i believe it was 2008 that it was created and it was around 2008 2009 where japan um you know again made these these changes to the interpretation of its constitution and started this planning so it really was, a, I think, a significant shift in how they're approaching space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes that makes. Um, I think I think that also comports with my understanding of of how those countries viewed that event. Um, and when it comes to the Indian Indian ASAT test uh, last year, so it sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, and you know, one of the things I really like about the fact sheets that um, SWF has put out is that. Um, Suborbital, uh, suborbital tests, uh, which are tests of direct ascent, hit to kill systems, um, are also included because those are often used in a missile defense application. Um, and and China has done that. There's a lot of overlap between Chinese capabilities uh, for both anti-satellite and missile defense applications. And certainly in the United States, uh, burnt frost in 2008 when we tested an SM3 interceptor against a decaying satellite, uh, or not tested, we, uh, that was a demonstration that the Bush administration said was necessary, I believe. Um, but um, when, it, when it comes to the Indian ASAT test, um, do you think that that test was a way for India to also develop its exoatmospheric ballistic missile defense capabilities? Yeah, I, I think so. It, you know, one of the rules of thumb is a lot of these big decisions are never done for one reason. So you mentioned burnt frost in the U.S. Um, yes, there was the, the public rationale, which was safety, because it was supposedly had a lot of, you know, a couple thousand kilograms or more of frozen, very toxic hydrazine. So the destruction would have prevented that from being a threat. But of course, it also gave away for the U.S. to signal that it too could destroy satellites in the wake of the 2007 Chinese and a satellite test. I think similar thing with India. I, I think it was a combination of multiple reasons. You had organizations like DRDO 
the, the Indian sort of high-tech research unit that had been pushing internally uh, to, to you know, develop and test anti-satellite capability for a while. You, you have the ability to also, that same technology, as you mentioned, is useful for hit-to-kill ballistic missile defense technologies. So that's sort of a, a, a twofer. Um, and then also it's a very public signal. And, and you, you, you sort of saw that in some of the messaging from the Indian government after the test that they said, you know, this, this ANA satellite test now confirms that India is a space power. And, and so, again, I think that program was probably sold on, you know, multiple constituencies all sort of getting something out of it. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the United States and Russia, because um, certainly two countries that are very significant players in space. The U.S. relies more on space assets more than any other country. Um, when it comes to the Asia-Pacific, uh, and certainly there's been uh, internal um, developments here in the United States, including the establishment of a space force. Um, but when it comes to the Asia-Pacific, uh, can you tell us a little bit about current views in the United States about the role of space capabilities and um and counter space capabilities in uh, in in deterrence and future warfare uh, in in the Asia Pacific region. What what is the current perspective on that? Uh, my my sense is the United States cannot envision any kind of a military conflict or operation in the Asia Pacific without space, and that's partly why they're so concerned. Mm -hmm. um, the the way we sort of talk about it is, you know, the the further away you have to conduct operations. And, and perhaps fight a conflict from your home territory, the more important it is for you to have the space capabilities that are going to allow that long distance observation, intelligence collection, communication, navigation, you know, all the things that modern military needs to operate. So for the United States, you know, space really is critical. Mm -hmm. and, and so it is, so the United States has had very robust capabilities to augment its military uh, its military operations, you know, very well demonstrated starting in uh, the Balkans uh, with, with the NATO exercise in, in Kosovo, uh, and then into, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan with those engagements. Uh, it's really in response to the growing counter space threats from Russia and China, that the U.S. has started now to focus much more on how to protect and defend its space capabilities, rather than the previous few decades was on just how do we make it better space capabilities to improve our military. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I guess everything does really tie back to great power competition, uh, which the Trump administration has certainly made a big component of its um, approach to the Asia-Pacific region and uh, and even Europe. But um, in uh, you know in the, in the coming years, um, you know China is expected to also uh, deploy the DF-17 hypersonic boost glide system um, very soon. Uh, perhaps it already has. We don't know. Um, and one of the concerns there has been um, conducting, um, you know, using newer space-based assets to monitor and track hypersonic weapons. Um, there's, um, also been talk for years, I mean, certainly going back to the 1980s about, um, placing missile defense interceptors in orbit, uh, which has been a big concern to China and Russia and has serious concerns for, um, things like strategic stability, uh, which is, uh, I think a bigger issue given the Trump administration's, um, complaints about China not 
joining the United States and Russia in strategic arms control talks. But how do you how do you see uh, those issues developing in the in the coming years? I mean, um, you know, there's no progress at the diplomatic level to control or limit these technologies. So is this an area where um, you know China, uh, you know, competition between the China and the United States will will be victim uh, to the security dilemma, so to speak, where the U.S. is going to pursue these capabilities or indicate that it's pursuing these capabilities, and uh, China will continue to react and make investments of its own um, in reaction. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I think that's sort of the fear among those of us that that are you know following us in the space security community, and, and I think what needs to be said is both the United States and China are in different positions in this in this potential you know in this great power conflict you take for example the south china sea uh, taiwan strait scenario the kinds of things that china military capabilities and things it needs to to deal with that are much different than what the us does which is why i personally sort of cringe when every time somebody says well china has x numbers of conventional ballistic missiles ergo we need to have that many too you know, you're trying to solve a different problem. And the tool set that China is developing is really aimed at kind of keeping potential adversaries like the U.S. away and, and, and sort of stretching out China's ability to, to exert power and influence beyond its, its borders, where it's been for the last several decades. So that's where you get into things like the anti-area access denial system that's been talked about so much, which is, again, a set of long-range missiles, space capabilities, and other things to make it so that they can kind of push back the, ability, the U.S.'s ability to get in close uh, to where China is in, in terms of operating. Meanwhile, the United States has to figure out how does it defend assets that are thousands of miles away from the U.S. homeland and, and so how does it operate at a long distance? How does it operate remotely? How does it surge forward things? How does it do that in an area where it also has to worry about what Russia's doing in the Baltics and what's going on in the Middle East, that it has all these commitments all around the world? That's a very different scenario. So, so yeah, I, I totally agree there. The, the political rhetoric is pushing things towards what may be sort of the traditional security dilemma, arms race sort of a thing. Um, I, I hope it doesn't go that way because I'm not sure that really suits uh, what's in the, the United States' interest. And, and, of course, the interests of, of stability in general. Yeah. So, I mean, generally speaking, um, you know, the environment right now doesn't seem to be particularly conducive to things like arms control limitations or even even the establishment of norms of behavior um, in space. But Well, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll say there is, I would say there's growing interest in that. Many countries, U.S., Russia, China included, have all talked about the importance of some of those things and, and doing something about the security dilemma. The, the concern is that for right now, they're all pushing different things. Right. Um, Russia and China are, are very much focused on weapons placed into orbit and pushing for a broad multilateral treaty which the United States flatly rejects, that that is even a problem, weapons and orbit being a problem, and also the multilateral treaty. The U.S. is pushing more of transparency and confidence being measures, you know, sort of more voluntary things. Let's build toward norms of behavior, which Russia and China flatly reject. So the, 
I think there's a challenge where people general acceptance there is some sort of a problem here, but we can't agree on what the problem looks like or how best to solve it. That's right. That's right. So, you know, we're um, we're we're kind of running out of time a little bit, but I wanted to um, steer you towards um, kind of giving us some closing thoughts on space issues in Asia, specifically sure. space security. So, you know, we've talked a little bit. We've surveyed the major developments, um, you know, debris from ASAT tests, um, intensifying security competition, um, the intensifying security dilemma at the level of the great powers. But when you look back, let's say, you know, the last two years, uh, it's just totally arbitrary cutoff uh, in the in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and, and looking ahead, I mean, what, what really is from your view as somebody, you know, who lives and breathes space security, um, the most concerning developments, uh, that you've, that you've seen, um, in, in Asia, uh, when it comes to space. So I would have to say the most concerning development I've seen, uh, and this, this is everywhere, but, but I think is, is kind of being driven by Asia is the, the lack of agreement that something in space is a bad activity right something to be irresponsible so the great example is you know testing of these anisotropes that causes debris in general everybody would all these countries will say that causing debris is a bad thing yet there's really no no formal effort or sustained effort to prohibit dis deliberate destruction that would create debris and so that sort of, le and in fact, the norm that is emerging is it's okay to do it as long as you try and minimize the amount of debris that comes out. And, and even worse, if you are trying to signal to other countries that you are now a space power, the way you do that is by destroying a satellite. I think that is destabilizing both for the space environment as well as for sort of general geopolitical security and stability and, and so on, on you know the concern i have is that we're going to see more of that testing uh, perhaps from additional countries trying to signal their arrival on the stage um, and that also is going to help improve these capabilities to the point where they might be reliable enough to actually be used in a future conflict mm -hmm. and sets up a scenario where you know, future conflict is not only aircraft shooting at things and ships, but also satellites getting shot at. And, you know, those satellites getting shot at could have much bigger repercussions that last for far longer to everyone than, you know, a ship that gets sunk in the middle of the sea and just kind of disappears. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, you know, precluding all of humanity from accessing low Earth orbit for peaceful uses in, in a realistic way. But, uh, you know, just to put you on the spot a little bit, I mean, when you uh, when you think about the countries that are the most likely candidates to potentially in the next 10, 20 years um, develop, test, demonstrate uh, these kinds of capabilities, uh, who do you look to? Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously, the big one right now is is Russia. They're, they're not new in that the Soviet Union developed and tested a lot of NSA-like capabilities in the past, but Russia has not tested a direct descent ASAT weapon. They've got one in development called the the, the PL-19 Nudal. There's a lot of concern that they may be next to go ahead and, and test that. Um, you know, if you look across who might be next, I would say, you know, the countries that, you know, want to show their they're, they're a power, they have some security challenges, they have a ballistic missile program, um, and they have, and they've, you know, dabbled in hit-to-kill missile defense. That's a list of, you know, a half dozen to a dozen countries, depending on how you yeah. sketch it. Um, 
you know, I think it wouldn't even be entirely crazy for, you know, even to hear some discussions about Japan or Australia thinking of those sorts of things. Um, now, they would probably do it in a way that doesn't create any debris. But they, uh, but there have been, I've heard rumblings of, well, maybe we need to consider our own counterface capabilities um, from those countries. And then the other one is France, which, you know, this past or last year unveiled a, their first space defense strategy and talked about some sort of offensive capabilities. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's all useful uh, note to end on. Keep our uh, keep our eyes open for these uh, new developments. Everybody wants to be part of the quote space power club, but maybe the way to do that is to be a, a good a civilian spacefaring country, you know. But um, anyways, I would uh, hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, Brian, it was really great to uh, chat with you today. I hope our listeners um learn something new about space security. Um, I'll throw in a link uh to the fact sheets because uh, I think they're actually a really helpful resource to get. Uh, to wrap one's head around what has happened and what might happen in the future when it comes to the capabilities currently in possession by a few countries. But um, yeah, thanks a lot for joining me today, and I uh, hope to have you back on soon when there's um, big news in the space security realm. Sounds great. Happy to join you. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of the Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, the Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.